Thanks so much for tuning in to the Mooney Ponds Baptist Church Podcast. Here we upload our weekly teachings that happen every Sunday at our 10 a.m. service. If we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out to us and check out our website at mpbc.org.au. Morning, everybody. Uh, Today, the Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verse 3 to 7, and I'll be reading from the New International Version. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I've found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who does not need to repent. The second reading comes from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I hope you're all well and, and happy. Uh, babe, could you actually do me a favour and bring me my glasses? I forgot to bring them. And Although I'm preaching from my phone, guess what one of the problems I've got is? Eyesight. I could set the phone to larger text, but that would be admitting something that I don't want to actually admit. Right, um, so today uh, I am standing in for Peter Gray. So, you know, Peter Gray has, uh, uh, is recovering from and doing around with uh, COVID, as I like to say, just as sort of the British way of saying it, just a little bit different. Um, but he is, according to the text message I got just a few minutes ago, he is recovering, still a bit croaky, he's um, doing okay. So that is good news. Now it occurred to me before, by the way, during Jess, while Jess was doing the All Things Christmas announcement, that that's actually the Black Friday weekend. Um, so I guess actually it makes sense to run an All Things Christmas on a Black Friday weekend. You get better gifts at Mooney Ponds, is that right? Um, I think I can see the promotional campaign right now. But anyway, what did you think of those two scriptures that were just read out? Uh, I'm sure that, you know, there's a lot of familiarity with this idea of the, the parable that Jesus told of the good shepherd going off after the stray sheep. And we all know what the story means. We all know that, you know, we are each sheep that have gone astray and, and there's a familiarity to it. But has it ever occurred to you to think, well, what does it actually look like when Jesus, when the Lord goes after a lost sheep? What does this actually look like in real life? And so today what I'd like to do is I'd like to uh, bring together the, um, uh, what does it look like when God goes after us, when God demonstrates that he's not even just waiting for us to turn to him, but he's initiating after us. What does it actually look like? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go running through a story, not my story, um, 
I've decided I'll go through a Bible story instead. Um, and that story's from 2 Chronicles 33. But before I go there, while I was researching for this sermon, I was thinking about the phrase, you never heard the phrase, don't look a gift horse in the mouth? In the mouth? In the mouth. Do you know where it comes from? I mean, obviously, we know what it relates to. I actually could not find any attribution of the quote. So I've decided that there's the only place it could have come from was from a surviving wall guard on the city of Troy. I think that's probably the only best option. But it is actually a relevant phrase for us. Ian, Ian likes my humour. Uh, it is a relevant phrase um, for the message today. And we know that God is all offering everybody a great gift. And yet a lot of the time, and if the statistics are to be believed, most of the people are looking at gift horse in the mouth. So let's have a look at and, and see what is actually going on. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we've got this tremendous story about a, a guy called Manasseh. Now, Manasseh was a king of Israel, and we, we, we're going to, a king of Judah, sorry. And we're going to go into this, but I'll give you a bit of background. I always like a little bit of background. So all of this happened around about 350 years before Jesus. Oh, sorry, 650 years before Jesus, get it right. 650 years before Jesus and 350 years after David. Now, that's a long time. Now, I'm pretty proud of myself that I can track my ancestors back 100 years. But, you know, somehow or other, you know, the records for these guys were good enough that we actually not only get an account of whose ancestor was whom, but we actually know something about their life. And you think about 350 years, so if you take 350 years off from where we are roughly today, you're talking about a story that would be what? Equivalent to a story from 1670 in terms of what, by the time Jesus was around. Now, you might go, well, what's this got to do with Jesus? Well, actually, Manasseh was a descendant, uh, sorry, an ancestor of Jesus. He was uh, he's one, directly mentioned in the lineage in Matthew chapter 1. As a, uh, a, Manasseh was a descendant of David, and, and Jesus was a descendant of Manasseh. And Manasseh's dad was a good guy, a nice guy by the name of Hezekiah. And, you know, and, and he had this really interesting life. And I just want to go through and read what the Bible tells us about his life and think about it in the context of this scripture of the Good Shepherd. And the Bible says that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Right, hang on, let's just stop right there. <laughs> Seriously? We just sent the kids out. 12 years old when he became king? Think about this. I don't know if I would be a terribly thrilled resident of Judah with a 12-year-old king. Can you imagine the decisions? and the decision-making skills and the reasoning. Now, I know that people used to be more mature in ancient times. They got more mature more rapidly. Well, sort of. We'll see about that. But seriously, 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. So, pretty decent stretch. Not quite at the Queen's Territory, but pretty good for those days. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord 
following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And in fact, if you go back to 2 Kings, the writer of 2 Kings said that he led Israel to practices that were worse than the nations that God had driven out before the Israelites. So by all accounts, Manasseh was a bad guy. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. That's good, rebellion against dad, that's, that's appropriate. Yep, we like that. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name will be in, remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. Just think about this for a moment. This guy is actually a pretty modern sort of guy. He's having each way bets on every single religion out there. He's going, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm up for this. I'll worship anything. In fact, I'll tell you what, I'll do anything but the Lord. Anything but the Lord. Um, he's pretty keen on religion, but he's not so keen on God. Then he gets worse. In verse 6, he sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnon. Now that's I, I emphasise the his because I think practice sacrificing any children is bad, but sacrificing your own children shows a, a whole level of bad, right? Um, practice divination and witchcraft, sought omens, and consulted mediums and spiritists. As I said, he was, a, he was very inclusive. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your ancestors, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and all the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Well, there it is there too. So what's it? you've got a picture of Manasseh here. This is a, a, a guy who became king at a very young age. He's clearly got a head full of ideas, of ego, and he is going his own way. He is a disturbingly evil character. In 2 Kings, it talks about the idea that it says that he had filled Jerusalem with the blood of innocence. So, I, 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 I want to really reflect on this. This is a, a, a person who, to be, if, you, if you were to put him before a trial today, what would you want to say? I mean, who's our, who's our chief, chief uh, object of sort of model of evil in the, it, it today. I mean, Vladimir Putin, do we say, oh, well, Putin, he's a, he's, he's a murdering guy who's invading a nation, and we... He's got nothing on this guy. Um, you know, I mean, you, you have to really reach to start thinking of a person who is equivalently evil in living memory. You know, and, um, and I, I think that's a, a, a striking thing that the Bible is telling us here. 
And it's even more striking when you consider the fact that Judah, by the way, was the only independent nation left out of Israel. So you remember that Israel was initially one nation under King David, and then after Solomon, um, Israel was split into two, and it was Israel and Judah. And years before all of this has taken place, Israel's been taken over by the Assyrians. The Assyrians have gone off, captured all the Israelites, the nation of Israel is no more, but Judah is standing strong as the last of the people of God. And after having a life of being raised properly, um, in equivalent terms, I guess, raised in the church, his father was a good man who followed the decrees of the Bible, followed the God's laws. Um, You've now got a guy who is sitting there and basically saying, I am going to do the worst possible things. Well, that puts a sort of dampener on the mood, doesn't it? Um, And I'm not even going to sit there and say, equate that to any... All of us can look at that and say, well, thankfully I am better than him. (laughs) You know, that's true. You know, I, I don't think there's anyone in this room because you'd probably be locked up in jail and the key thrown away if there was any of you who were any or any of us who were anywhere near as bad as this guy. Fair to say. So let's have a look at what God does about this. Because up until now, it's all been about Manasseh. And we'll pick it up in verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the first thing that God did was he spoke to them. How did he speak to them? He sent prophets. And one of the prophets that he sent to Manasseh was a guy, a little unknown guy by the name of Isaiah. Everyone familiar with Isaiah? So Isaiah, you know, one of the major prophets, a guy who wrote some of the best prophecies about the Messiah to come, was sent to Manasseh to say, you know what, you need to repent. You know what Manasseh is reported to have done with him? Now, this is outside of the Bible, so I'm going to step outside the Bible towards Jewish tradition here. But the, the, the Jewish tradition says that Manasseh killed Isaiah. He murdered Isaiah and had him either sawn in two or dropped under um, a large plank of wood, depending on which particular tradition you're reading, um, a large log of wood. He, he said, I don't like what you're saying to me and I'm going to kill you. Now, at that point, you would say, God, you know, you've made a reasonable effort here. I think that this guy is beyond redemption. But the Lord didn't give up. In verse 11, the Bible says, So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Now, okay, now that's beginning to be a little bit more like it, a little bit of justice going on here, right? Um, So the Lord has taken Manasseh down. Manasseh has been captured. Even though the nation of Judah hasn't fallen, the king has been captured. Now, in equivalent terms, you think about this, this is, I don't know, our prime minister getting captured by a foreign power if we're in war. The leader of the nation has been captured and he's been put on display. He is being publicly humiliated with a hook in his nose. Now, I don't think they put a hook in his nose for the art effect, I think they put the hook in his nose so they could drag him around and lead him around and say, look how pathetic this character is. Right? So finally, Manessa's getting a bit of a a wake-up call. 
But this is what the Lord has done to him. And so then, in verse 12, in his distress, he sought the favour of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. Well, about time. So finally, when he's feeling some pain, he humbles himself. Now, if I was God at this point, I'd be like, yeah, well, guess what? You killed my prophets, get stuffed. You know, that would be my attitude. I don't know, I, I, you're going, oh, come on, you wouldn't be like that. Yes, I would. I know myself, all right? Somebody has gone and messed with my, seriously, you are, you are seriously telling me you're going to go and kill the people I sent to you? You've killed children and now you cry out just because you've got a hook through your nose and you've been humiliated? I would be, my default behaviour would be to say, let me give you one. Seriously, dude, you deserve a whole lot more than this. Come on, king of Assyria, start chopping off limbs. You know, that would be the default response, I think, of a lot of us. Now, some of you in this room, I know I can see it, you're much nicer than me, but let me tell you, I think that most of us would at least hold a grudge for a little bit. Yes? And this is where it goes, really astray. It says, and when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Now this is the bit where I go, this is twisted. God, do you know what you're doing here? Like the Bible records in Romans chapter 2, it says God's kindness leads us towards repentance, but this is kindness at a level that you can't even fathom, right? God, the guy has done so much evil, but he's not being repaid even in the slightest bit fully for it. Okay, he got called evil at the start of the bit that remembers him. And he got led around by a hook through the nose and was humiliated. But... The Bible says not only that God restored him, it says that God was actually moved. God was moved by his entreaty. God was moved by his prayer. That the prayer of an evil person could be heard by God and shift God's heart and God say, okay, I'll give you a chance. I'm going to give you a chance. And that, by the way, is what I believe that parable of the good shepherd is all about. You see, we think about this pretty little parable, you know, the shepherd goes off after the sheep. But what if the sheep doesn't want to come back to the, to the flock? What if the sheep wants to go and play in the ravines? Those wolves look like fun to play with. Maybe it wants to be a wolf. You know, this is what, and God keeps on going after that sheep. And this is what's happened here. God started off gentle with Manasseh and sort of said, okay, I'm going to send you some prophets. You're going astray. Maybe being king at 12 years old went to your head. I'll be, I'll be an understanding psychotherapist. You know? But what happened instead, Manasseh rejected him. And then God says, okay, well, if I can't take, do it the easy way, I'll do it the hard way. You can feel a bit of pain. But the pain he's feeling is in no way proportional to the pain he's caused, this guy has murdered people. What about the relatives of the people he murdered? Where is the justice in this? And that's actually the thing that's amazing about grace, isn't it? Is that grace overcomes justice. 
we don't get what we deserve. You see, even though none of us are as evil as Manasseh, I put it to you, this is a parallel that most of us should be able to relate to. I know for my life how much I mocked and have mocked believers and faith and how much I've allowed my arrogance and my pride and my sin to dominate my life and to just do what I choose to do as long as I can get away with it. I know that that's been what happened and that God reached out to me, reached out to me for years before I became a Christian. Years. I just thought they were all idiots. It was like, what are you... Go go away. But eventually God brought me to a point. I didn't bring myself to a point. I can take no pride in it. I didn't bring myself to a point where I could accept God. God brought me to a point that I could accept him. And I know that all of us have a similar story. Isn't that right? We could, we could sit there and say, yes, that's right. God brought me to a point where I could see him. I deserve nothing. Now, what is the point of a story like Manessa? The point is that no one, no one is beyond God's grace. No one is beyond God's reach. There is no one who cannot be saved. And even the most evil, vile, arrogant person that you imagine now is probably not got a candle on Manessa. They can be saved by God's grace. They can come to a realisation. And not only that, they can be. God is going after them. God is in their life. It's not all on you. There's all these things going on and God's doing these things personally in every person's life saying, hey, I'm reaching out to you. And he'll be very gentle for a while, but he may well bring about a calamity in a person's life if that's what it takes to get them to wake up. You know, going off away from the flock is dangerous. Occasionally you have to realise that. But let's have a look at what Manasseh responds with after this. It says, then Manasseh knew the Lord was God in verse 13. In verse 14, afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gion Spring in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate. Is that a gate you'd want to go to? The fish gate. Anyway, a um, uh, bit smelly. And encircling the hill of Othel, not O-F-F-A-L, by the way, uh, he also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord God, the, the Lord, the God of Israel. He, this is a guy who's turned his life around. In response to God's grace, he didn't just cry out, he came back and he said, okay, I'm going to live differently. And again, this is actually what the grace of God is calling us to. Yes? You see, the Bible talks about the idea, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and God's grace was not without effect. It caused me to work harder. You know, when we recognise God's grace for what it is, when we recognise God's grace as the gift that it is, 
It produces action, not action that we're compelled into, not something that we have to be flogged into. Okay, God, you did it. I'll do something about it. It's action that says, oh my goodness, I am so lucky. Can you imagine if you won, I don't know, won lotto, that's the big thing, right? You win a $10 million super draw or $100 million super draw. Let's use numbers that matter today, right? $10 million ain't what it used to be. $100 million super draw. That'd be pretty lucky. What about if you didn't buy a ticket? Well, that'd be absurd. And that is actually what is happening here. People who have not even been able to buy a ticket are winning lotto. The forgiveness of the Lord, eternal life forever with God, that's us. We are recipients of God's grace. And not one of us has done anything to deserve it. And that's the point of these messages, I believe, around God's grace, is that that realisation of where we stand before God, the realisation that God is doing everything for us and that every single element, every single one of those decisions we've made, those dawning realisations, that moment that we've come to, is a gift in its own right from God. The circumstances that he's given us, the people he's put in his life, the words that he's given us, the circumstances, and even, dare I say it, the suffering, is actually a gift from God. You know, and I don't want to make light of anyone's suffering in saying that. But God is across everything that we need. He knows what we need to go through. And he teaches us. He reaches out to us. He extends his grace to us in ways that we really struggle to imagine. You know, one of the great challenges right now we face around being a Christian is that Christians are, more, are perceived much more as being judgmental than as being joyful recipients of God's grace. Isn't that true? What's in the media right now today? I, I read it this morning, uh, you know, probably what I, now I always read the news, what can I say? There's, there's a lady who was a Senate, Senate candidate in the Liberal Party, and I'm not judging her at all, I've got no pony on anything, but the news is all about, because she's a Christian in a, in a, in a, in a particular church, that she is more interested in controlling people's lives than she is in celebrating people's lives and making them better. That's essentially the narrative if you read the news. Now, I don't know what the truth is, all right? Maybe it's true, maybe it's false. I have no idea. But the thing that's really interesting is how has our community gotten this perception of Christians? Is it possible that there's an element of truth, that that's what we've been about? Is it possible that at times we are... You know, I know I can be a grumpy old man, but I mean, seriously, is it possible? My wife just gave me the big nod, yes, you can be the grumpy old man. So you shouldn't have done that. Now you get called out. Um, uh, is it possible that we as a community or we as a collective set of people who are recipients of God's grace aren't just going, wow, this is fantastic. Let's celebrate. Let's party. Let's have a great time. Let's acknowledge the amazing gift that God has given me. 
But instead we go, oh, well, finger wagging, oh, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. You know, all of the things that we talk about, you shouldn't do this and do that, probably true, but that's not the issue. The issue is the attitude with which we approach life, how we actually engage with life itself in response to God's grace. And what I would put to you is that there's maybe a need that Christians should be known as people who are just delighted with life, people who really love to celebrate life and God's grace and love and extend love and amazing forgiveness to any, everyone. I, um, well, I was looking up for this sermon because I originally was slotted to preach in December. I was going to be preaching on hope or something and, and uh, you know, I think we'll be swapping with Peter now. And I was like, okay, God's obviously got a bit of a plan here for me because I obviously need to read this. And I, I decided to sort of like look up amazing stories of grace, you know, as you do. And there are amazing stories of grace. And you read about people who have forgiven drunk drivers who have killed, like uh, there was a pastor in the United States, his young wife pregnant with a child, killed by a drunk driver, uh, sorry, actually not drunk, he was was deadly tired, he was coming back from a 24-hour shift at work, it was as though he was drunk, because when you're that tired, your your reflexes and everything, and he went, fell asleep at the wheel, killed. What, What is the response of this pastor? To testify in his trial for a lighter sentence, that he not go to jail. I was like, what? Are you kidding me? There's no, where's that revenge bone? But this is a pastor who understood what he'd received in God's grace. You, you, you see it in people who show and extend forgiveness to people who, who don't deserve to be forgiven. But they extend it anyway because they understand grace and what they've received. You see, when Jesus taught us the Lord's Prayer in the book of Matthew, he talks about the idea that uh, forgive us as we forgive others, right? And he goes on to say, for, you know, as you forgive others, the Lord will forgive you. But it, it, in so many ways, this shouldn't need to be a command. Having been forgiven, having been given the lotto prize, why shouldn't we be generous to everybody else? Because every single one of us has fallen short of the mark. Every single one of us is recipients of God's grace. And the good news that we share is, first and foremost, great news. The news that everybody can participate in this. Now, you're like, oh, yeah, well, but people still need to know right from wrong. Of course they do. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. And God is absolutely on the case. Do we still need to preach and teach what is right and what is wrong? Of course we do. Of course we do. We we need to still call out that lies and deceit and sin is still sin. But it's not the defining point of who we are. The defining point is grace. All of those things simply tell us what we've been saved from. Because all of us have done those sinful things, whatever they may be. In Ephesians chapter 3, I'm just going to be finishing on this note. I think, am I ahead of time? Yeah, I am. What well, doesn't matter? Short sermon, good sermon, yeah? Is that right? We'll go, go with it. 
In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14, Paul writes that and he talks, he's been talking in Ephesians all about the magnificence of God and God's grace. And, and this is what he says. And I, I've, I looked at this and I thought, this would be, I think, a great prayer for us. It's a great prayer for me. So when I, when I read this, you can sit there. If it's not great for you, just sit there and pray for me, all right? And Paul says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives their name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's, that would be my prayer for, for all of us. Let's reflect on God's grace. Let's celebrate in God's grace. As we, whether we're having an all-things Christmas event, whether we're just fellowshipping after, after church, whatever we're doing, let's have this underlying joy that comes from the knowledge that the Lord is the shepherd who went out after us, even when we had turned away from him. Amen.